Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio, something that I love to do. And we've got a new guest for us, someone that uh, is new to the podcast. He's not been a guest on our podcast yet, but we hope he'll be back on further episodes. But John Graff from Arbor Research, John's full title is PhD, MS, Program Director of Scientific and Data Coordinating Center at Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. John, welcome to the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks, Dino. It's a pleasure to join you. And I got that fully correct, John, correct? You did. Awesome. That's That, that was a mouthful. Good thing for show notes. It is a, it's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so full disclosure for audience at home, John and I have been friends now, John, for over a year, right? I, I think since yeah, we've been- Yeah, it has been a while. I, I consider you a friend because we talk we talk once a week. This has been routine every week. Sometimes, some weeks, it's multiple times. Uh, but John is leading the charge for us at Arbor Research with the Precede Consortium. And Arbor Research Collaborative for Health is the data coordinating center for the Precede Consortium. And we're excited. This is a, a large, huge initiative for us here at Project Purple. Um, it's our biggest research grant that we've ever gifted. Uh, the folks, uh, John and his team, I should say, at Arbor Research have just been phenomenal to work with, along with the 35 other centers that are in the Pre-Seed Consortium. And you guys have really been instrumental in helping us guide us through this massive project in the hope and search for early detection of pancreatic cancer. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Arbor's work, Arbor Research, I should say, excuse me, sorry about that, um, and their work with us in Precede. But before we get there, as we always do, John, we always allow our guests the opportunity to share kind of their background. And uh, this is your opportunity to share with our audience a little bit about your professional background, how you got to Arbor. I know you were in New York for quite some time. Uh, which we, we had that long discussion when we had our, our first pre-seed meeting last year. You said you knew New York pretty well because you lived there for some time. Um, so with that, John, the mic is yours. Uh, thanks, Dino. So a little bit about myself. Hmm. I'm a cancer epidemiologist by training, um, and I've been doing that for probably the last 20 years or so. I got my doctorate at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, in epidemiology. Uh, I did graduate work at the Wayne State University School of Medicine in Detroit, Michigan, and I did my undergraduate at the University of Michigan. Um, cancer epidemiology, how did I get there? Um, one of my professors in medical school said to me that he thought I would be a better researcher than clinician. <laughs> and, and he said, why don't you come work for me because you have a researcher's mind and I had to agree with him while I've always been very intrigued by clinical medicine and certainly oncology um, I especially love doing epidemiologic research or research in large populations um, and he was also on faculty at the Carmanos Cancer Institute. Um, when I finished my doctorate in epidemiology at Alabama, I was hired back to the Carmanos Cancer Institute and Wayne State School of Medicine to be on faculty there and run 
what is called the Surveillance and Epidemiology End Results, or SEER, registry in the Mm -hmm. metropolitan Detroit area, where we conducted population-based studies of cancer prevention, control, and outcomes, um, treatment and outcomes. And that's really how my career got into cancer epidemiology. I ran the research program at the Carmanos Cancer Institute and Wayne State School of Medicine for the SEER registry for about 13 years. And then I was recruited away to the state of New Jersey and Rutger Cancer Institute of New Jersey to run their SEER registry, their population-based cancer registry for the state of New Jersey and the associated research program. Um, They didn't really have a very large research program. They did, but it could have been more successful than it was. And they, they recruited me there to build the research program. And I did that for the next five years and then came back to home in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and was hired on staff at Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. Um, when I came to Arbor Research, most of the work in Arbor Research is in nephrology, urology, and hepatology. No cancer whatsoever, but we had this opportunity to partner with Diane Simeone, a pancreatic cancer surgeon at New York University, to build this very large consortium of many cancer centers in six different countries around the world. Uh, Pancreatic cancer is a very rare disease, as you know. That's a very deadly disease. The survival rate is extremely low. And the reason for that is because people are diagnosed at very advanced stage of disease. So there really isn't any effective treatment or very little effective treatment for people at those very advanced stages of disease. And that's why it was really important to put this consortium together because the small numbers of cases or patients that they have at all of these cancer centers, we can take that proband case of of pancreatic cancer and we can identify their relatives who may be at high risk of developing cancer. We can give them genetic testing to see what kind of genetic abnormalities they may have. And we can see if they are at increased risk and we can build this very large cohort of high-risk, familial genetic high-risk people on whom we can perform research to see how best to detect pancreatic cancer at its very early stages. The reason why this is such an intriguing research consortium and program is because nobody has ever done anything like this before. Nobody has had the access to so many different cancer centers and so many different high-risk programs to put the small numbers all into one pot to create one big cohort for research purposes. And this will be the most effective way to form an early detection resource for these people who are at high risk so that we can screen them, we can identify their cancer at early stage, and we can treat them 
very successfully if we can identify it at early stage and we can then save lives. So our mission in the Proceed Consortium is to take this disease that has such dismal outcomes of five-year survival rate of around 8%. And we, in 10 years, want to increase that five-year survival rate to more like 50%. And that's the goal we're setting for ourselves. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, I, I want to circle back here because I didn't realize you were a cancer epidemiologist. I knew you were working in cancer. I, I mean, maybe we did have this discussion in, in back in December, because um, I know that's when I remembered. But so you went to Alabama. Like that's like, you know, football legends, I guess, you know, or football gods here, you know, and in terms of, of I didn't realize that either, which is uh, you learn something new about someone every day, right, John? I guess that's what they say. Um, and talk yeah. about football prowess, you know, you go to University of Michigan and then Alabama, which, you know, are probably in the last 50 years, you know, probably two, you know, we could throw some other names in there, but, you know, those are two phenomenal uh, football programs and phenomenal schools as well. Carmonos in Detroit has really become, and, and, and you know, you mentioned you were there for 13 years. That's really become kind of a, a really fascinating hub in terms of pancreatic cancer research. Uh, there's, I believe, a doctor by the name of Dr. Philip Phillip. Um, who was Aretha Franklin's oncologist. Um, he's worked some, uh, some other folks that I know that we've interacted here at Project Purple with on our patient financial aid program and, and have heard nothing but amazing things about that program there at Carmanos, which is, uh, which is very fascinating, um, you know, that you, you have a connection there. And, and that's pretty wild just to hear you say that because I didn't know that either. So again, I learned three things so here about you that I didn't know. <laughs> My career actually started studying pancreatic cancer. <laughs> it was in um, collaboration with a group at the University of Michigan. I was on staff at, at Carmanos, and it was way before I even got my doctorate. I was just a research assistant, and this group at the University of Michigan were studying the effects of DDT exposure on pancreatic cancer. <laughs> and it was a very large study. It was a very successful study. The results were equivocal. We, we couldn't quite prove that DDT exposure did increase the risk of pancreatic cancer. But once again, it was limited by numbers. And the way we were identifying the numbers of pancreatic cancer in that case control study was through the cancer registry in southeastern Michigan, which is only three counties, Wayne, Oakland, and Detroit. Hmm. So what we did was we targeted hospitals in southeastern Michigan where most of the pancreatic cancers were diagnosed so that we could interview people about their exposures, their lifetime exposure, whether it was just environmental, um, geographical, environmental, or occupation-based um, to see if we could uh, get any information about their DDT exposure. It was difficult to do that study because we were getting retrospective information. It was based on people's self-report. There was no way that we could get true exposure for those individuals. And that's probably why we had trouble finding the association. 
I still believe that DDT exposure does increase pancreatic cancer. It's just there was so much noise introduced into that study design, we probably didn't see the cause and effect relationship. So I began in can pancreatic cancer, and now I'm probably going to round out my career finishing in pancreatic, pancreatic cancer, cancer as well. What's the irony there? Yeah. Yeah. So, so as a cancer epidemiologist, and, and let's define an epidemiologist in, in fairness, because some of our audience may not know what an epidemiologist actually does. Well, a joke that a lot of epidemiologists always tell is that whenever they say what they do, and you say I'm an epidemiologist, people say, oh, skin. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's dermatology, not <laughs> epidemiology. But people are thinking epidermis. Yeah. Um, the the root of the word is epidemic, mm -hmm. and it's basically following trends of disease through populations. And there are all kinds of epidemiologists right now. The most important epidemiologists in the news are for COVID nineteen, COVID, yep. and these are uh, infectious disease or viral epidemiologists. Uh, cancer epidemiologists are more of a chronic disease epidemiologist. And I specifically have always been involved in quality of care and outcomes. So basically matching patients to the best care that they possibly can get for the best outcome. And that's why my uh, involvement in the Proceed Consortium is really a nice uh, feather in my cap. I'm really enjoying this project. Well, I was just going to ask my second part of this question. This, that was a loaded question, John. Was okay. Being in the pancreatic cancer space is is because there is so much unknown. And as you said, you you know you're looking at the the you were looking at the effects of DDT and how that affected pancreatic cancer. And 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 I, I say unknown, but I also think and we've been doing this now 10 years, there's a lack of data, right? And you know, this is one of the things we'll, I'm sure we're gonna touch on with Proceed that we're gonna change that. That's one of the goals with this massive amount of data that we're collecting. But is it, it almost like, I would say gives you agita, and that's an Italian term, like you know, get your stomach churning a bit with pancreatic cancer that there is so much unknown and there's so limited data and we just don't know as an epidemiologist and having that background. So in epidemiology, the strength is in numbers. Yeah. And you can't do epi successful epidemiologic work unless you have large numbers. And this is why pancreatic cancer has always been such a tough disease to conquer. Yeah. Because when people do clinical research, they have access to their clinic, to their cancer center to their geographic area, to their state. There are limitations, but what Proceed is going to accomplish is they're gonna break down those geographic barriers. They're gonna break down the barrier and limitation of numbers by recruiting 35 cancer centers from six different countries to have this enormous resource of high-risk population with whom to partner for this research where we can develop early detection biomarkers and testing. And then we will be able to treat people very early on for their disease. 
I like the answer. Um, let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. You guys are located in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We are. I know you mentioned that you guys have really focused on uh, nephrology, uh, hepatology, and so this is kind of the first cancer consortium collaborative that you guys have been engaged with. But what are the roots of Arbor Research? When did it start? Who started it? And how did it become about? Because I, I, it's just kind of fascinating. I mean, I know, you know, big data has been talked about for a long, long time, but um, it's just kind of fascinating to me how things get started and, and where those beginnings begin, I guess. So the way Arbor Research began is it kind of grew out of the Department of Nephrology at the University of Michigan. Um, this, they had a really strong research program in the Department of Nephrology. Uh, but like at many large research institutions, um, there sometimes are barriers to success of research that are buried in the paperwork. And the research chronology is a fascinating area of medicine because it is, it's, it's a really challenging area of clinical medicine. Um, especially glomerular disease, where people can be classified in one of four types of glomerular disease, but they any two people with one of those four classifications can have completely different outcomes, completely different reactions to drugs. And they really needed this group in the Department of Nephrology. They needed kind of freedom from the barriers of the paperwork in the university to branch out and be successful and build our research program. So they broke away. I think there were six or eight people that broke away from the university and they started what is now called Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. And that's why much of our work at Arbor Research is in nephrology and specifically dialysis outcomes and practice patterns. One large division of our company is just that, doing studies in dialysis outcomes and practice patterns. It's called the DOPS study. It is worldwide. It's in many different countries on many different continents. And they just, it's the biggest research program in dialysis. Uh, Another division in our company that has grown over time is the Health Policies and Practice Program, or what we call HP3. Um, And they work in developing health policy at the federal level to inform the practice of nephrology in the United States and even around the world to make sure that state-of-the-art practice is being performed within that medical science. Then the last section of Arbor Research Collaborative for Health is my program, the Scientific and Data Coordinating Centers. And what we do is we build large research networks in many health practices, health centers, 
um, throughout the United States and even around the world to investigate rare diseases and make sure that state-of-the-art research is being performed in these chronic diseases. One of our newest projects and most exciting projects, in my opinion, is the Proceed Consortium. And we haven't even told the audience what that name stands for. No. So that's a great segue. And I, and I am biased, John. I, I think Proceed is probably the most exciting thing you're working on. No. I, I, I just want to say, <laughs> I, have, I have two points. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one is amazing work that you guys are doing for, you know, all those diseases. And, you know, I mean, clearly I am biased, um, but I've said this multiple times and maybe I've said this once or twice on the podcast, you know, my mom's a two-time breast cancer survivor, but pancreatic cancer took my dad. And that's why I'm so passionate about pancreatic cancer, but there are so many diseases out there that do deserve, you know, further research and further funding. And it's great to partner with groups that are helping so many, you know, and I just want to put that out there. But also the, the, the last thing I want to say about Arbor Research is that you guys are a nonprofit as well, which um, I didn't know originally when we were first beginning our dialogue. And then, you know, we did some research and we, uh, we saw that you guys were a nonprofit, which I think is helpful knowing, you know, you're working with all these groups and helping all these people to know that you guys are a nonprofit, I think is important. So yeah, none of us are getting rich doing what no. we do at, at, at Arbor Research. That's for sure. No, but we're doing it to to create a better world for all these people that are battling all these diseases and, and putting something positive, hopefully, out there, which I know right now we're in the COVID pandemic. And, you know, there's so much negativity out there that, uh, you know, the world needs more and more positivity. So with that, let's shift gears and talk about Precede. And it's the Precede Consortium for Early Detection of Pancreatic Cancer. And you guys came on, I think, fairly, I wouldn't say right from the very beginning. No, you guys were, you had been forming this consortium probably yeah. a year before we were approached yeah. to make the consortium coalesce a little bit better. Correct. And I, and I think originally, full disclosure, I, I think we originally thought that we could do it with one of the research centers, uh, research partners or our you know, institutions that is actually seeing patients. And I think then collectively we agreed, okay, we, we really have to find someone who's a disinterested third party that doesn't necessarily have patients coming into their center. And I think, you know, in fairness to, uh, to all the centers, I, I think this is, you know, the advantage in my eyes, and I come from a non-clinical standpoint here, is that, you know, you have 35 centers inputting data into this disinterested third party, which is Arbor Research. And I think this is the one thing that I have seen in my 10 years of doing this is that, you know, as much as the clinicians want to work together, sometimes there's that institution that stands in the way of working with different centers and who owns what and what becomes what. And so that's always been something that I've been very vocal about from day one, regardless of someone's sexual orientation, their faith, their race. I do not care in the sense that we are going to work together and we're going to figure this thing out. And that used to drive me nuts when we would talk about, you know, 
collaboration with some of these centers and not to be named, but I remember like one of our first or second research grants, they were like really like tough about like sharing information that, you know, we were paying for that was getting done. And I was like, whoa, like this, this is, this is madness. And this is why, you know, we're, we're not making progress. So I, I know I just went off on a, on a rant there, but uh, you know, we're excited to work with you guys and, and you guys came on. I believe like a year into it, um, but shortly after the funding of, of, you know, us making the financial decision. Um, so it was kind of like perfect timing in my opinion, John, you know, in terms of when you guys came on board and I know I want to ask you kind of some questions here, but I want to have you give your take on pre-seed and, and what you've seen so far. Okay, so you did make quite a long statement there, and I'm going to react to a lot of it first. Um, collaboration. You can't have science without collaboration. Oh. And colla- collaborative is my company's middle name. Yeah. <laughs> Arbor Research Collaborative for Health. So we know how to collaborate, and we, while we are not technically a clinical center within the Proceed Consortium. We are a partner in the research. And um, the, the one statement you did make in that long soliloquy you it gave- It was a rant, was, John. John, let's be I, honest. It was a uh, rant. It was a rant. I was ranting. That uh, it was important to bring in a disinterested third party. And I'm anything but disinterested. Well, in fact- uh, we at we at Arbor Research never join in any research network unless we have someone on staff that can partner as a principal investigator and an interested party to lead, spearhead, and be a content area specialist for that piece of research. That's why we focus in certain areas of medicine, and of course my background is all in cancer, um, specifically breast, prostate, um, pancreatic cancers. And then I also did some work in leukemias and lymphomas back when I was doing a fellowship for the National Cancer Institute at the University of Alabama. Um, So we are a very interested partner, (laughs) but the, the specialty that I bring and certainly my group and my division and my company brings is in bringing all of these research centers, clinical centers together, because sometimes they're competitors with one another. And that's, I think, what you were referring to in your statement was that that competitive side can come out every now and then. And especially when it comes to grant funding, clinical research funding, these people are running a business. While it's a research business, it's a medical business, it still has to be competitive to some degree. And when you have the third party like Arbor Research getting involved, we know how to break down those barriers of competition and make everybody play by the rules, follow those rules, and conduct the best research, data collection, data use, data analysis, 
possible. I agree with everything you're saying. I guess I'll I'll correct myself when I said disinterested third party. I didn't mean. I, I guess, as you said, uh, we, okay. we want everyone. That's okay. No, no. I, I think I stand corrected. It wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a discussion with me if you didn't have me contradict something. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But no, <laughs> I, I, I think as you know, we know each other well enough. Um, you guys aren't disinterested. You are interested. But my point was, you know, when you have, uh, let's say, a particular center being that data hub um, and not providing any data to any of the members, <laughs> that, that that becomes an issue or, you know, a center is not willing to share data because it's going to another center uh, or not even a center. We should not use that word. It should be a, another institution that sees patients either locally or, you know, from afar, you know, where people can get on a plane and, and go visit a clinician at that center, um, which is not right. the case for you guys. And, and I think you're no right. One clinical, no one clinical center has any proprietary information over these data and the biosamples that are being collected. Yeah. It is the consortium. Yeah. And the consortium, one of the tenets of this consortium is to share data, share biosamples, and be collaborative. And pretty easy. You can't, <laughs> yeah, you can't you can't be a part of this consortium without signing on to that from the very beginning. You get kicked out of the sandbox, as I say, John. And as I, as I've said at the, uh, at the meeting, so, um, th this, I know you've talked about this. Is this the largest group that you guys have put together at Arbor research? No, no. Um, so the DOPS program at Arbor research, the dialysis outcome and practice pattern patterns program, that is the largest program. Um, and even like our childhood uh, liver disease research network, that would, um, I don't know. I think we'll be in competition for size with this program. Um, but over time, I can see that Proceed could become one of our larger projects at Arbor Research. Um, and that's because no one has been able to ever bring so many cancer centers together mm -hmm. for this deadly rare disease. And now that we've built the infrastructure, the data collection system, the biosample collection and tracking system, and all of the participating cancer centers will be using that same standardized model for data and biosample collection. I think that federal funders private industry funders, uh, foundation funders will be very interested in providing support to this consortium because they know that no one else was able to build this infrastructure. And the infrastructure was all paid for by you at Project Purple. So we owe you a tremendous debt of gratitude. Well, thank you, John. And I know, like we've, I've said multiple times, you know, uh, support comes from our people listening that support us, that participate um, continually, um, even in a virtual setting right now, given what we're going through. And uh, once we get back to actually physically getting together, those folks that will continue to support us. And, you know, I, I do want to make a note here, you know, uh, 
from a clinician standpoint, clinical standpoint, you know, Dr. Diane Simeone, who's been a guest multiple times on our podcast is really leading the charge on the clinical side, um, you know, to get all these 35 centers on board. Um, they are the lead center at NYU, uh, with Precede to kind of lead the charge from the clinical standpoint. But let's talk a little bit about Precede and in, in terms of Arbor Research, what you guys are actually collecting from these 35 centers, because I think that's kind of important for our listeners to hear as well, uh, because this is a little bit different than I think what people think, you know, because I think when, when people talk about early detection, I know in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of work done in, in blood, you know, uh, blood tests, possibly there's been imaging things that have come out. So I just want to make sure our audience understands like what we're actually doing here. We, we keep talking about collecting, collecting, but what are we collecting here, John? Okay. So I, I early on mentioned that cancer, uh, the pancreatic cancer being a rare disease and all of these centers, they treat pancreatic cancer. Uh, when those patients are identified at the centers, they have families. The family members could be at a higher risk of developing pancreatic cancer. They do not yet have pancreatic cancer, but they could have it at some point in time. So those family members come to the cancer center and they go through testing for certain cancer, certain genetic abnormalities that increase there, the possibility of them developing pancreatic cancer at some point in the future. When those people are identified, we recruit them into the program. We can send them into the program. We tell them what it's all about, uh, what kind of data will be collected, uh, what biosamples we'll need from them on a regular basis. And they come in either every six months or annually, depending on their level of and we ask them about their family history, about their exposure history, their lifestyle history, um, their medical history, um, if they have certain diseases that might also predispose them to developing pancreatic cancer. Um, and then they undergo certain imaging, um, specifically MRI imaging, and endoscopic ultrasound imaging. And these annual imaging tests would be what we would give people as an early detection test. So we can see cysts on their pancreas or any other kind of abnormality that might be going on in the pancreatic tissue. The results of those tests are also kept in our database. Um, we get blood samples from these people so we can do DNA testing on them. Um, and in the future, for individuals who may progress to pancreatic cancer, we will also be getting tissue samples so that we can get any kind of genetic information from that pancreatic tissue on those individuals. In addition to all of that, we are also identifying relatives of 
these high-risk people in the proband or original pancreatic cancer case, if they have other family members who have pancreatic cancer, we would like to get their tissue as well so that we can have the full picture here of who is developing pancreatic cancer and why. Then we work backward to figure out how to predict people developing pancreatic cancer. And with those predictions comes early detection. I don't know if I answered your question completely there. No, you actually went above and beyond, John, there and, and giving people kind of a, a, a you know a, a real in-depth look at you know what we're doing and how we're you know getting all this data, which you know it sounds. I mean, this is a lot of data that we're collecting, right? And not just on every single person, but we hope eventually to have. 5,000 people, if not more into this database. I know we've, we've talked about, you know, getting our numbers up by the end of the year as, you know, these centers would get through the IRB process, which is a internal process for these centers. It stands for institutional review board. Yeah. So it's basically ethics and research. Um, Every medical research institution has an IRB and anytime you design a research study of any kind, you go through IRB review to make sure you are conducting your research ethically. And of course, we're conducting our research ethically, but it's a very slow process to get through IRB review. Um, and especially when you have multiple centers. Now, federally funded research in the United States that is located at multiple clinical centers, now all must use a single IRB, which means every research institution uses the same IRB, whether it's at the clinical research centers or whether it's a four higher IRB. And we're doing that on within the Proceed Consortium. Mm-hmm. And you know this very well, Dino, because you have paid the bill for <laughs> our central IRB. Yes. Um, and even though we are not yet federally funded, we are following that rule to use a single IRB to expedite the ethics review process so that when we do get that federal funding, we will already have that in place and we will be able to function as efficiently as possible. Absolutely. And again, thank you to you for to do that and make our work more successful. Well, I I go back to thank our supporters and our participants because they allow us to do this. And, you know, I, I think with a lot of this, we've been thinking fast forward, not completely fast forward, but I, I guess into the future right? and where, where does this take us? And this is a good segue, John. And, and I know this is the, these next couple of questions are going to be a little bit loaded here. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll preface you, you know, give you some fair warning here. We've talked a lot in our meetings about numbers. How long until we start to see, do you feel some results in this in terms of getting some measurable things that I know that we've talked at length about precede what we're attempting to do 
we mentioned here on the podcast about, you know, finding an early detection protocol, finding ways to track these high-risk patients. I mean, I think that's gonna that's happening right now because we're we're tracking these high-risk patients as we speak, and these 35 centers are doing that. But when can we start to see maybe some tangible results in terms of uh, what the, the consortium is all about, John? Okay, so I said that earlier on that one of the requirements in order to be part of our consortium was to share data and biosamples. An, another rule or regulation in order to be part of our consortium was you had to you have to have an ongoing familial high risk cohort at your center. And we are just now formalizing the collection process of the existing programs at the 35 centers. And people are providing me the numbers of people they have in their centers. And I'm actually blown over by the number of genetic familial high-risk patients they're already seeing. You know, I'm seeing 250 at a center. I'm seeing 100 at another center. I'm seeing 400 at another center. So this first year of data collection, of consenting people into the proceed study, we're going to see the biggest, most rapid growth of numbers that we will ever see because there's already this large bolus of people at all of these cancer centers that they've been following already. So I think we're going to reach our goal numbers very quickly in year one. And then we will be able to follow those people over time and any new participants that come in over time. We're going to have a very rich resource, not just at the end, but every year there's going to be increased serial data collection on the existing people and on all of the new people. So we're going to be able to do a lot. Yeah. I, I'm, I don't want to say cautiously optimistic, but I get really excited when when we talk about this because I think as the year evolves, it's almost like a fine wine. As the year evolves, years, I should say, I'm saying this year. I mean, I, I just look at what we've been able to do in less than a year. You know, we we met as a group. We had all 35 centers come into New York City last December and meet for the first time and talk about things. And, you know, really kind of put the groundwork in. And then today, as of today, John, what do we have? 10 centers that have signed off on IRB and we have a couple of centers inputting patients into the database, I believe. We do. And those, those centers, they can, as soon as they consent the individuals that they're already following in their clinic, as soon as they consent them, they can put in all of those data that they've been collecting for possibly 10 years. Oh. So we're going to have a lot of retrospective data, and then we're going to have ongoing prospective data. And this is, this is an epidemiologist's dream <laughs> to, have, <laughs> to have this kind of resource with which to conduct research. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, 
I get it really excited. And, and I know when we were at the meeting in December, I had some hard words or stern words about numbers. And at the time I was like, oh my God, I don't know, maybe I, I set like the target too high. And then, you know, COVID came and I was like, oh man, this is not going to be good. But now to have these centers come on board and then to hear that centers are, you know, putting patients in. And then also, I think, you know, since December till now, you know, learning more about our partners in this consortium and realizing that so many had so many patients already filled into their clinic um, is just really exciting. And I think that's one of the things that really excites me. I know I, I, I went on a tangent here before about, you know, centers not playing together in the sandbox, but I, I will say this, that for the 35 centers that have come on board with us, it is so inspiring to know that all 35 the clinicians that are involved and their centers are engaged and working together and as excited as I am, as you are with this thing is just really, really inspiring and powerful. Um, they've never been able to partner in on such a grand scale as we've been able to with this consortium. And all of your donors, all of your families that are, are, providing support to Project Purple, they can know, they can be absolutely confident that their dollars are being used in the best way possible because they're being used by this group that represents worldwide every race, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic status will be involved in this research. There will be no misrepresentation because it will be so generalizable across the whole world of pancreatic cancer. I couldn't agree with you more. I'm really excited and, and not to sound corny, but the future is super bright with this thing. And, and I'm just, you know, for a while there, um, and I think this could be said for anyone, you know, with the COVID pandemic really put you know, I was really worried. Um, but you know, and especially because the epicenter was New York and we had, you know, our partner in NYU, we also have Mount Sinai there, Columbia, who are also involved in, in precede consortium along with Yale here in Connecticut, you know, so it was just so close to home. And I know that the team at Mount Sinai was reassigned. I believe the team at NYU was some, some pieces were reassigned and we knew that, you know, patient families, high risk patients, high risk, you know, people in, in these clinics were not being seen for a little while. Um, not physically, um, they were still trying to, you know, see everyone via the tele. Um, but to see how this has turned so quickly and that, you know, we've got everyone, you know, back on re-engaged, we've got the 10 centers. I know there's more that we're, we're hoping here. And as this thing, as this podcast airs, we'll, that number will continue to increase. And the ultimate goal is to have all 35 centers on board with the IRB and inputting patients that we're hoping to get through here over the next couple of months. So it's just really, really super exciting. It is very exciting. So I want to give our audience, and, and I've got one more question here for you, John, which is an easy one. But um, if our audience is interested in learning more about the Precede Consortium, 
It's real easy. They can go to preseedconsortium.org. Um, there's also links there to all the 35 centers um, that have given us their information. I don't know if all 35 are listed. Um, I, there's there's a bunch there. There's close to 30. I think we're still waiting on a couple of uh, URLs and logos. Uh, but you can also get to Arbor Research Collaborative for Health via that website because you guys are listed as the data coordinating center. But if someone wants to go and learn more about Arbor Research Collaborative for Health, John, what's the best place to do that? Our website also, it's very comprehensive. It will discuss all of the three programs that I discussed. It will discuss all of our research. It will discuss all of our partners. Um, and it has links to any one of our research networks. Our website is arborresearchoneword.org. Awesome. Well, John, thank you for all you're doing for the Pre-Seed Consortium from all of us at Project Purple. Um, you guys are a valued partner in this thing that we are trying to rid the world of pancreatic cancer and, and hopefully put ourselves out of business, uh, which is a good thing. And uh, really appreciate the time here to share your story. Thank you for being in this field. Uh, you've been a pleasure to work with, and I really do look forward to working with you here, hopefully for a long time, but a short time, because that would mean that our job is done. And I don't mean that uh, kiddingly. I, I, I usually am, I, I'm not usually, I'm always serious when I say that. I, I want to put ourselves out of business because that means our job has, uh, has been completed and that's the ultimate goal. But I really do look forward to having you on board to help steer the ship here and, and be a valued partner in everything that you guys are doing over at Arbor Research. I'm really, really excited for the future. Well, thanks, Dino. It's an absolute honor to be a part of this consortium. And like I said, this will be the biggest feather in my cap with which I round out my career as a cancer epidemiologist. Thanks, John. Thanks for being on the podcast. And as we say here at Project Purple, if you love what you hear, please follow us wherever you listen to your podcast, share this podcast, and until next time, be safe. And that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Beep.